Hello and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name is Jonathan Webdale. We hope you're safe and well wherever you may be. Today we hear from director Bill Eagles about his new series The Reunion, an English language mystery thriller for the European Alliance of Public Broadcasters. And from ERR's TV tour, OnePlus One Media Group's Olga Slizarensko and Maria Belaya and Globo's Isadora Filpi, all from Nappy Budapest about the latest developments in Central and Eastern Europe. Bill Eagles has built a storied career as a director in the UK, US and across Europe. His latest series, The Reunion, is an English-language mystery thriller based on French novelist Guillaume Musso's book La Jeune Fille et la Nuit. The six-parter, about a high school reunion in the French Riviera, is produced by France's Make It Happen studio for the European Alliance of Public Broadcasters comprising Italy's RAI, Germany's ZDF and France Television. The show, distributed by MGM, with ITV having already acquired rights for its upcoming UK streamer ITVX, was presented at last month's Monte Carlo TV Festival, and Eagles talked to Michael Picard about it, as well as the impact streamers have had on the industry in terms of storytelling and creativity, plus the little-discussed topic of directors being typecast. My name is Bill Eagles. I've been directing for far too long, uh, more years than I can count. Uh, started off at the BBC doing documentaries, made a short film, ended up directing a feature film in 2000 called Beautiful Creatures with Rachel Weiss and uh, Susan Lynch. And uh, on the back of that, got invited to work in America, worked on CSI, Gotham, Mentalist, a whole bunch of episodic shows in Los Angeles, lived there for 10 years. Moved back to the UK, did a mixture between UK and uh, Los Angeles, ended up on a show called Strike Back, which which was an HBO Sky television co-pro, which was probably a little bit below the radar, but it was a really well-financed action special ops soldier show. We shot in South Africa, we shot in Namibia, shot in Croatia, Malaysia, all over the place. And um, that was a great, that was a great gig. Uh, I also set up the Good Karma Hospital because I got a bit of a reputation for shooting, kind of shooting stuff in which people were doing a lot of shooting and blowing stuff up, you know, the action guy. So I actually made a big pitch to Tiger TV to set up a nuanced character piece about a charity hospital in India became the Good Karma Hospital just to kind of reassure everybody, maybe just also reassure myself that I didn't have to do just bang, 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 boom. I could do sensitive pieces which are performance-led and were about and were character-driven. And Good Karma Hospital has been up and running ever since. So um, right now, what am I doing? Just on a new Netflix show, Palomino, uh, working with some of my left bank colleagues from Strike Back, female-led action piece, huge Hugely exciting, set in Barcelona. I don't want to talk too much about it because it's very early stages. Uh, it's all kicking off in a good way. And uh, I believe it's got all, it's got legs. It's going to be a, a, a real kind of, um, I think it could be a bit of a wow in the new year. Fantastic. I mean, that's a, that's a great sort of uh, rundown of, of your vast sort of career and, and successful shows. You've, you've worked on numerous of them. I mean, it was interesting what you said about typecasting. So I guess that's something you might just assume with with actors have to deal with. But what's that like for directors? Is it, can you really get a reputation for doing kind of just one genre? Well, I always think, you know, whenever producers get together and they've got a project and now they're going to, you know, they cast the cast, they cast the actors, but they also cast the directors. And I think, you know, when they're sitting in a room and they're thinking, who are we going to get to direct this? You're lucky if you have one sentence said, um, 
path to your name. Oh, such and such a person, he's really good with kind of romantic, you know, nuanced stuff. You know, such and such a person is good with ensemble team. Such and such a person, and yeah, they do really good action. I mean, I think we get, we just get little labels attached. The truth is, we're kind of lucky just to have the labels because that keeps us in work. And but he, but sometimes it just narrows down the potential to extend ourselves. And I think everybody's busy. Everybody's looking to try and get the, you know, fit the right director to the gig. So, you know, there is a shorthand. We understand it. And, you know, the producers who are looking for a director for another action show might look at my 17X of Strike Back. But if they're looking for a kind of weird, quirky, offbeat comedy, why would they pick me? And yet I could probably, you know, absolutely, you know, roll out that and celebrate doing it. But I'd have to make a sort of thing to get in there to break those kind of straight lines, the way you're kind of taken from one genre to another, to another, to another. Uh, or should we say, you know, within a genre, taken from one sort of season to another or episodes or series. Then you really have to make a huge effort, I think, to break those kind of assumptions and ideas about you. And we, we've we've both just uh, returned from the Monte Carlo TV Festival where you were with the cast and the, and the producer of uh, The Reunion, which is a, a new show that you've directed. I mean, maybe you can just tell us a bit about that and, and where does that fit into your nuanced, character-driven action thriller well, background? <laughs> I mean, I have to say, in the light of what I've said about being typecast sort of thing, that, you know, you, you get the action shows more and more, you get kind of pigeonholed. This is not the case with The Reunion because The Reunion is based on uh, a European, a French best-selling novel called La Jeune Fille la Nuit by Guillaume Musso. Not many people have heard of Guillaume Musso in uh, the UK, but everybody's heard about him in Europe because whenever he publishes a new book, it's like a bestseller. It's a number one bestseller. He makes sort of those kind of relatively thick books you pick up at airports that have totally engaging plots, total page turners. And uh, I think he's published over 20 titles in his career. So we got this book, uh, was set up, the whole deal was set up by a Parisian production company, incredibly entrepreneurial uh, and very kind of um, on the up producer called Sidney Galong. He got the rights. And so Marston Bloom, British writer, really talented, successful guy. He's worked on Marcella, a whole bunch of other things. Marston took the novel, which is a literary work. It takes different characters, different points of view. It has a very interesting literary structure, but not totally kind of an easy ride to turn that into a six-part miniseries. Marston knows his business. He's a TV guy, uh, soon to be a movie guy. He transformed that material into six episodes, and he took the, the absolute kind of essence of Guillaume's story, and he worked alongside Guillaume and essentially we have a protagonist who's in his early 40s. He was at a high school, an international school back in uh, in Antibes uh, in the late 90s. And he's invited to a reunion. So it's 25 years since uh, he left the school, going back to a high school reunion. And he's going to meet two of his closest pals. There were three of them. There was Thomas, Fanny and Max. They were like super tight. And they had a summer, an amazing kind of summer of love, actually. A summer of love and obsession and of betrayal and eventually murder. And 25 years later, he's going to go back and stir up the kind of bond and all the sort of muck's going to come to the surface uh, and there's a huge danger for all the characters that the secrets they tried to cover up all those years ago are going to come bubbling up and find public recognition and uh, a lot of jeopardy involved. And when we tell the story, the point of view of Thomas, who is an unreliable narrator, it's about, I mean, the themes of this show are essentially the unreliable nature of memory, obsessional love, sometimes inappropriate obsessional love, friendship, betrayal, and the pains that we find in middle age reflecting on lost youth and uh, so Thomas goes back and you know goes back to the, the international school and starts trying to find out he's covering up some
something very bad he did, but he's trying to discover a huge mystery that was never solved about another student who disappeared in that period 25 years ago. And when he does, we hear a story from the story that he assumes is correct. We go to episode two, we peel back layers of the onion. Another character will give us a different version of the story. And that happens throughout the episodes. Across six episodes, we will hear six different versions of this story ending in a climatic reveal, which I think nobody's going to be ready for, even if you've read the book, because we play some tricks and some surprises along the way. No, it sounds great. And, and it was great to see you and, and Gregory Fatusi and, and Jan Grufford uh, in Monte Carlo. So, And from what I've seen of it already, it looks like it's going to be um, a real kind of uh, you know binge watch of a show to find out what happens uh, at the end. Um, I mean, it's an, it's an interesting show because obviously you, you mentioned it's a, a French novel, uh, a French producer, but it's uh, an English language series and, and it was kind of produced for the Alliance, ZDF yeah. by France Television. What's that like for you as a director coming into that kind of mixture of interests and, and partners and, and how did you navigate that as the director? Well, I think it's interesting. I mean, the project was developed by Master Bloom, as I said. So the six episodes have been through the process of had it all had notes. The, all the episodes have had notes from ZDF, RAI, France TV and MGM. Don't forget MGM International were a massive contributor to this. So by the time I got the six scripts, they've been through a sort of process of lots of the co-pros inputs, editorial inputs. However, you know, there were certain kind of voices that were louder than others in the casting and there were some kind of negotiations in the casting. We ended up with a wonderful international cast. The whole thing is set in an international school in the south of France. So it made sense. We had American cast, French cast, UK cast, Icelandic cast. It was a kind of international cast which reflected the uh, population of that international school and reflected the characters. So, and then I was allowed to shoot it. I didn't have a producer. First time in my life, I haven't had a producer working right next to me. I had exec producer in Sydney Galong and we were in touch with Guillaume Musso and sending him dailies and assemblies. But essentially, the French system doesn't always work in exactly the same way as the UK and US. So to some extent, I had probably had a little more freedom than I've had for a long time to create my own universe, uh, to populate it with characters and develop the characters I love with the cast I love, and uh, to shoot it in a style which reflected both the gritty reality of the present, where characters are digging up perhaps more secrets than they'd like to, and an idealized past from 25 years ago, where our characters are remembering things with the rosy glow of uh, nostalgia tainted by a corrosive kind of darkness that they kind of also remember. Did you want to bring different visual styles to the, the two kind of timeline tracks? We wanted to allude to this notion that memory is a fact, it, memory is unreliable. And so and we also wanted to think, which I've certainly something I believe is that we tend to kind of bury some of the darker memories that we might have or the less palatable memories. And we tend to sort of celebrate and hang on to some of the more glorious memories, human nature, it's part of the human condition. And these characters also had another motive to remember the golden period because that slightly sort of allowed them to look less sharply, less directly at the way that friendship went sour and went into some very dark deeds. So we wanted to have a sort of, um, yeah, we wanted to have a very subjective sense of the past. Uh, and so we cho- we worked with relatively antique lenses from the 1990s, uncoated glass, got lots of flares, warmed up the picture quality using the extraordinary kind of sunlight we had in the coat. There's a lot of exterior shots and soaked up the sunlight, soaked up the luminosity of that landscape. And the lenses gave us a bit of a distortion shot anamorphic in the past, shot with these uncoated lenses. And in the present, we were much colder, grittier, more contemporary feel, and a whole different set of lenses to achieve that look. So we went for two very distinctive sets of equipment. And that has allowed us to, I think, really successfully create no doubt in your mind that we could move from our cast in the present and our universe in the present and our storytelling in the past. And of course, we had to work with a double set of cast. We had to cast our characters in the 
the present and then cast their characters in the past 25 years ago. So we have cast a bunch of relative newcomers who were in their 1890s and 20s. And then we had a cast for the past, of course, for 25 years ago. And then we had a cast of the present established cast who are in their early 40s, mid 40s, whatever. And uh, so that was also a challenge. That was part of the fun. What kind of director are you with your actors? Do you like to rehearse a lot? Do you like to just get on, on set and see what the actors can bring to, to the roles that they I think on the script? On something new, it's something new where you're starting from scratch. You've got to rehearse. You've got to rehearse. You've got to spend time. And also we wanted, we didn't want to spend too much time getting a young cast together with a more mature cast. We started with the uh, present day cast, more mature cast, and we built the characters up and did some rehearsals and found some inflections, maybe some mannerisms that we could then inform our younger cast to pick up and so that they would seed the connections with the older cast. But yeah, I mean, I love working with actors. And I, I mean, I, the beauty of working with, I mean, I had everything going for me as a director. I had the mature cast, they're very experienced, done a lot of work. And I had a young cast, uh, some of whom were straight out of drama school. It was their first job. Uh, we had the leading character from the past, was Ivana Sackner. Now she's done Pacific Rim. She's just been hired to do the new Star Wars TV show. She has more experience than the others in the past, or other 18, 19 year olds. But she has done a lot. And, and, and we had to create this magical gathering of sort of four teenagers who had this extraordinary connection. And we cast them and we put them together and we watched on set as they performed and they found their characters with careful direction. And then we watched, you know, in between the shooting and sometimes they weren't on the set and they had weekends off and they still hung out together. And we created something magical. We tried to create a cast of 18 to 19 year olds who forged extraordinary relationships. And that happened both in front of the camera and behind the camera. But for me, the most exciting thing is what's an actor going to bring? An actor who's been prepared, who you've briefed, who you've discussed the character with, done some rehearsals, you turn up on set, and my kind of instinct is to say, okay, we know the scene, this is happening here, you know, so you have to come in the house here, or we have to kind of, you know, use the backlight here, the lights over there, so principal angles here. But let's see, let's just run the scene, show me what you got. And I love to, you know, rather than be kind of uh, too over-direct, I mean, I'd really like to know what are the actors bringing to the set? Because they're working with a cast like this, they've done prep, they've been doing many rehearsals with each other, and they're coming to set fully prepared. And it's brilliant, you know, and you say, okay, and, and sometimes then that allows surprising things to happen. Things maybe that I wouldn't have come up with if I'd been trying to be more mechanistic as a director. And trust the actors, trust the actors to bring their spirit, their talent, their personalities to the set. And that's both of the young ones, the more mature ones, that's the most exciting thing for me. When you see the scene for the first time in the very first rehearsal, and the actors are going to show you how they're prepared, how they're thinking about it. And sometimes you squeeze it and lean a little bit this way. Sometimes you might feel it don't quite get enough of that. But a lot of the time, it's a golden moment. Great. Let's just get the cameras up. Let's get lit. Let's start shooting. And and on, on the reunion, you mentioned you, you know you directed six episodes. How does that kind of process for you compare to when you're coming into doing, you know, a first block leading, setting up the show or, or coming in to do a second or third block? How do you see those changing roles? Well, I mean, here's the thing, you know, setting the show from scratch, then it's a massive act of faith. Nobody's seen the cast acting their characters in front of the camera until day one. And you know that there's going to be all the co-pros are watching it, all the execs are watching it, the cast are probably watching it if they can. And there's this certain sort of edgy, ooh, you know, what's it like? How's it going to work? Kind of feeling a sense of anticipation sense of excitement sense of concern sometimes and because you're doing six episodes we were doing six episodes across two timelines we had to block shoot out all the locations on some weeks we're in the international school and we're shooting scenes with the young cast from episodes one three five and six and the mature cast with two three four or five and so keeping one's clarity about a very complexly plotted story across the sort of continent
continuity elements where any character is at any given time was probably about as complicated as it gets across six hours of TV. So um, usually when you do a miniseries, even if you're doing multiple apps, you might do a block of two apps. So you keep the sort of narrative relatively condensed, another two, another two, another two. But across to do six and be block shooting, that really is keeping the plate spinning and really uh, keeps you on your toes. <laughs> I can imagine, absolutely. And, you know, here, you, you were, here you're working for public broadcasters across Europe and you've worked obviously in the UK for different broadcasters and now you're on a Netflix project. I mean, how how do you see the landscape for drama in terms of how are the streamers perhaps changing the game for you? How perhaps more interestingly are traditional broadcasters sort of upping the game and, and sort of, uh, you know, I coming back? In a mini revolution in yeah. TV, people talk about a golden age of TV. The, the streamers changed everything because they were able to have their kind of uh, unique selling proposition. They would focus on one or two lead shows that would bring in subscribers and they could put money into those shows, the like of which ITV and BBC could never have done because they had to spread their money across all the, the shows across uh, a 12-month period. So the streamers have come up with high-end projects which have raised production values, raised budgets, and very quickly became apparent, didn't they, about five, five, maybe 10 years ago, that the material that was being made was on a level that had previously only been seen in mid to maybe even high-range feature films. And there's been this movement of uh, from the writers, from cast, from the talent to TV. You're getting people who would never have done a TV show, leading leading men, leading women actors across, you know, really huge star names, you know, who would have never done anything other than features. And we're moving into big quality high production TV. And of course, it's mainly led by the writing talent. The writing talent has come into TV to inform, you know, to make the streamers make these shows which break the mold. I think that there was some sort of thought, I don't know where it came from, I've heard it said, Netflix and Amazon really if you're going to get people to pay subscription, you've got to keep them on. You've got to keep the audience on their toes. You've got to keep fresh. You've got to keep evolving. You've got to, you cannot stand still. You cannot rework the same old thing. And so there's been a premium on invention in storytelling. And it's going on to this day. And there's this genre bending stuff that's happening right now, like Yellow Jackets. It's a high school film about football team. It's a cannibal holocaust. It's a detective show. It's a fascinating time when all bets are up in terms of storytelling. But one thing that there's a premium on is invention. And uh, so it's never been a more exciting time to make TV. I think BBC and ITV are trying to catch up. I know ITV are launching ITVX in the new, uh, later this year, which is their own streaming platform. And I think I think it's raising everybody's game, you know? And um, yeah, I mean, it's just a very exciting time to, to get into TV. And then just in terms of that, you know, invention that you were talking about, I mean, how true is that, do you think, when it seems that broadcasters like IP uh, more now than it seems ever with books and, and graphic novels and podcasts now providing some sort of familiarity or, or resonance with viewers that may have already tapped into that somewhere else. How much invention is there? Well, I think, I mean, I think this, the material that they're tapping into, some of the graphic novel stuff, some of the IP stuff, is also incredibly inventive and is very radical and is pushing boundaries in terms of uh, the kind of, uh, I don't know, I mean... Um, yeah, I guess representation of sexual activity, violent activity, uh, the kind of, um, I just think the kind of the stuff of story has become enriched. So it's not just that everything has to be totally inventive, but it's material that would have been class as 18 only, whatever it is, your subscription channel, it's not a hidebound by terrestrial broadcasting. You can reach 
for darker, stranger, uh, sexier material, whatever. And so that's going on. So that's some of the IP stuff is, you know, brings with it that edginess uh, that could not have been tackled by terrestrial broadcasters in the past. And there's still non-IP stuff going out. There's a lot of, at the Monte Carlo TV Fest, the tourist was winning, taking prizes hands down, totally original piece, no IP involved. I mean, there's, there's an appetite for invention and for taking perhaps bolder, more daring material from the IP world. Uh, both of things are happening at the same time. Absolutely. And and you mentioned, you know, the, the writing talent that there is now in TV. And I guess if, if filmmaking has been a director's medium, TV perhaps has been the space for writers. How, how have you seen the role of the director in TV evolve over the course of your career? And it's been put to me by a couple of directors now that directors are more important than ever with so much TV out there to watch. You really need a director with a distinct visual style to, to make a show stand out from, you know, beyond the I mean, script. I mean, yeah, what am I going to say? Uh, hey, you're right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you're right. <laughs> you, really, you, you really need strong and powerful inventive directors. I mean, I think the truth is you've got more opportunity for the kind of material that's being made to be a strong and inventive director, you know, but the, the, it all starts with a script. I mean, you know, I'm in awe of great writing. I love to get scripts that, you know, other page turners that you really have got no idea when you're getting to the end of episode one and what the hell is going to be on the last page and now you're going to get into episode two. But the strength of the written material does require us, you know, bring a perhaps a stronger skill base to material, uh, allows us to have more fun working with the cast. And I think that there is a premium, not a, the, the, the word inventive is interesting. Let's come back to it in terms of the writing and directing styles. Certainly there's a, one can push the boat out. I think in terms of directing style was less confined by the traditions of what was terrestrial television 10, even 15 years ago. So it's pretty hard time to be a director in TV, but yeah, you've got to bring a big skill set to the table. And if you get the right producers and the execs and really believe you're a fit and you're working with the writing, working with the talent, then, you know, you were likely to get the freedom to really turn it on as a director in the way that would have been hard to win that freedom and that trust maybe 10, 15 years ago. Director Bill Eagles. NAPI Budapest took place in Hungary last week, marking the event's first in-person meeting since the pandemic. TV Tour, acquisitions executive at ERR, was among those attending and spoke to Nico Franks about the kinds of shows the Estonian public broadcasters looking for, from young adult drama to science documentaries and music programming. Tour also talked about how ERR is transitioning to streaming with nascent on-demand service Jupiter, which is already proving more popular with some viewers than competitors from overseas, such as Netflix and Disney+. My name is TV Dur. I'm a buyer for Estonian Public Broadcasting. Uh, mainly buying kids' content at the moment, but also looking for science documentaries and concerts, so very different kind of slots to cover. And we're here at Nappy Budapest International. So in terms of those genres, what are you looking for specifically? Um, my main focus uh, here looking for content was a drama series for young adults. Uh, since for now we have this platform uh, called Jupiter, which was launched two years ago, and uh, now they have the special page for young adults as well. Uh, and uh, starting from this year, we actually uh, <clears throat> started to do so that every month we uh, uh, put there uh, one new series for, for them to have a look. Uh, so it, uh, we saw that it's working quite well. So probably we'll continue this next year as well. That's why I'm keeping my eyes, eyes open what's, uh, what's being offered. Uh, and uh, yeah, that's the reason why I went to screening as well. Fantastic. And in terms of the shows you've already acquired in that 
age group for Jupiter? How have they been uh, received? Uh, of course, it depends a bit on the series. Uh, and we have also tried to keep them quite different kind of content as well. Uh, some are more entertaining and some are quite uh, serious ones. So, uh, uh, And some are British, some are from uh, Scandinavia. So I, I, I guess it also uh, affects uh, the viewing numbers a bit. Um, some prefer uh, uh, more serious series, serious series. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I think they have done well. Otherwise, we wouldn't have considered uh, doing the same next year. So in terms of that young adult demographic, are you looking for those kind of very edgy young adult shows, or is it more those young adult shows for that age group that is you know too old for you know kids in inverted commas series, and just looking for something a little bit bit more grown up to be honest we're looking both <laughs> we're still testing which works um, we have had quite many edgy series here there so uh, as, and as far as I know they have worked well so uh, um, yeah it's a question of it, it's it's been a question for us uh, for a while now that uh, we do have like a, a separate uh, platform for kids as well and there have been a co couple of series where we are like which which uh, target group it is for, and whether we should uh, we, whether we should voice over it or subtitle it. Uh, so there is a, some part of the series where we are in the middle of deciding where to put it. <laughs> so Zombie Lars, for example, was one of them uh, from NRK, I think, uh, where we had to use subtitles, even though the target group for was for uh, I would say kids. But the content itself was a bit, uh, um, how to say, sensi sensitive, sensitive. So, uh, so, and that that one, for example, we put to Jupiter, just because uh, it was subtitled. But uh, we try more. We, we we would like to be more edgy. <laughs> so, and uh, I know that uh, uh, the series uh, that w will be put to the platform should also be shown uh, in our channel later on. So. Uh, we have tried to um, we try to be more edgy. It would be cool. <laughs> yeah. And obviously, they're coming from all around the world now. It used to be, you know, young young ad adult when it was produced. It would be very American, the odd Australian show. But now, yeah, as you mentioned, Norway, lots of countries. So, is there a kind of territory that or region that you particularly kind of looking at because there are similarities with the Estonian audience? Mm. Well, yeah, I think we have quite uh, uh, we are quite similar to Scandinavian countries. Uh, I personally uh, like a lot <laughs> of Danish and uh, Swedish and Norwegian uh, series, and I think one of the reasons is just because I see there uh, quite a lot of similarities. But and we are, we also love uh, British series as well, so uh, that's why we've had quite many BBC series there as well from for young adults. Mm -hmm. And so you mentioned you're also here acquiring content for the younger demographic. And there's a kind of small crop of kids distributors that have been here at Nappy Budapest International as well. In terms of, yeah, obviously it's been a while since being able to go to events. How have you found that process of now going back to acquiring face-to-face -face and what are you looking for for that younger age group? It's been a pleasure being back and, and seeing my friends again. Uh, of course, we've had these Zoom uh, meetings during that time, but uh, yeah, we are all like enjoying <laughs> just to 
just to chat face to face and uh, and to catch up. Uh, well, we are always keep on, keeping on our our eyes open, so we are looking uh, for preschool for kids, both animation and live action. So. Um, it's hard to decide because there's so many good content available, but there's only like very limited amount of slots to cover for new content for us. So it's difficult to choose, but of course uh, I'll t try to do my best to have the best ones uh, in ETV2, which is our main channel for kids content. And since the pandemic began, what have been some of the acquisitions that have really kind of succeeded for you on your platforms? Um, I think, uh, as far as I remember, we uh, during that time we had quite many uh, re-licensed uh, re uh, series there as well, uh, which uh, was a good idea because uh, children always like these uh, uh, classical ones that have always worked and the, they were uh, they were well received. Uh, we put there quite many of these. Um, I think, as far as I remember, we also had a few. Uh, more educational type of series there as well. Something for both kids, something for an older ones, uh, just short filler type of series, which work well in the platform as well. So yeah, we try to um, have more content there than usually, actually, yeah. So something every, uh, we launched there, I, I think it was every week we had something uh, new going there up to the platform. Now life is returning to, you know, a bit more something like normal in terms of how kids' viewing habits have changed and what you offer. Uh, you, so you mentioned a kind of more, the slightly more educational. Has that carried on into 2022? Well, being as a public broadcaster, we always have to have something educational. So in that sense, I, I, I think uh, nothing has changed. And uh, we had, of course, earlier as well. But uh, um, talking about the, their habit, viewing habits, I think, yeah, uh, of course, uh, since uh, COVID, uh, the viewing numbers in our uh, kids' platform uh, doubled, <laughs> at least doubled, uh, which was a good thing for us, of course. And we, uh, the numbers are not that great, uh, not that high than they were in the, you know, in the peak of the, the time. But uh, they are still pretty good. So we try to, to try to do the same this year to keep it, uh, keep it high level. And how is that co-production model in kids evolving? because obviously it's been a kind of business model that has now been adopted by wider parts of the TV industry. But for, for many years, you know, now kids, producers have had to kind of piece together their budgets using pre-buys, I'm assuming from companies like ERT. So is that something that you're continuing? And yeah, what's, what, what's your kind of ideal kind of way to acquire programming? Is it very early on or do you prefer to come on later in the process? Yeah, so far uh, we haven't had the chance to do uh, that many pre-buys. For us it's quite exceptional if we do uh, pre-buy some content, to be honest. I wish I would have this uh, opportunity, but um, we, d we usually prefer to have a look at the final versions and uh, and to make the and, and then make the decisions. So you acquire a lot from the BBC. Yeah, we do uh, for years now. So uh, BBC, we know that's good quality. It's always been so. We're very happy with their content. Um, but besides BBC, yeah, about I think half of it comes from BBC, and then the other half comes from French and uh, British companies, uh, who also have uh, really nice documentaries there. So we have. 
we've always had something about um, space, universe, planets, uh, because uh, every year, even teachers sometimes write to us and ask whether you have something for us so that they could tell the children, tell the students, and to have a look. And of course, also about um, just you know, even on psychology sometimes. So it very much depends uh, uh, on. Uh, uh, what we've had before, and we prefer to have, keep it varied, so different topics, yeah. And concerts, so you mentioned needing concerts, so is that in all different kinds of genres of music? Yes, that's a good question, because uh, we've had uh, this year uh, many different kinds, of because uh, we, we are trying this uh, new slot that we have, culture slot. We, sh we have there both culture documentaries, and then uh, after the documentary, we show some kind of concert, which has been a very different kind of concert. Just we're, again, we're trying. We're trying which works well. Uh, we've had a lot of classical ones, but also pop concerts, especially during uh, holidays. Um, but it's interesting to know what happens next year, actually, because uh, there are changes happening in our uh, channel. Uh, new member uh, of the boards, members of the board are. Uh, have been selected, so uh, and there will be a new head of programs uh, soon to be selected. And I know, uh, and I'm pretty sure that uh, he or she has some new thoughts regarding uh, our channels as well. So I'm not pretty, I'm not yet sure if this uh, music slot will continue. I hope it will because I enjoyed selecting these uh, as as much as uh, watching kids' content. Let's say so. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good mix, and that's international bands as well as Estonian acts? Estonian and, yeah, international both, yeah. And I know Estonia is an incredibly technologically advanced country. It's got some of the fastest Wi-Fi speeds in the world, is that right? So how does that impact kind of the broadcaster, you know? Have you kind of gone all in or planning to go all in on streaming, you know, turn off the TV channels like we're seeing in, in some some countries? Well, yes, uh, we have put quite a lot of uh, investment into Jupiter uh, lately. So, uh, since it's, and it is working well, uh, people have found the place. I think uh, this platform is the might be even more popular than Netflix uh, for some, to be honest, because it's uh, firstly it's free for everyone, uh, and you can see both Estonian content, but also uh, all the series and documentaries and everything. Everything is there. So. Uh, the numbers have gone up, so they are, I know, I'm, I'm not good at technical side, but I know that they are making, uh, each year they have some plans made for how to make it even better, uh, to using apps and, uh, and everything, <laughs> so um, I'm, I'm really happy that it's, uh, it's doing so well. But you know, it's always a question of, yeah, I, I don't think it will happen very soon that, you know, everyone's going to the platform to watch the series, so probably there will be... It will take years, and I, I don't think it will, you know, there are still people who, are, who will watch TV more than uh, the platform. And finally, are you feeling a great sense of competition in your market from services like Disney Plus and Netflix as they kind of ramp, well, have ramped up? And are they kind of, are you, are you kind of acquire, trying to acquire the same content, or is it kind of quite... Mm separate we definitely don't want to have the same kind of content that is something that I've always uh, uh, thought that you know uh, we 
it, it's better to have a different kind of content uh, for kids and they can then make the decision what to, what to have a look. Uh, to be honest, I don't think uh, Disney uh, will affect our ratings that much because uh, mm, the Estonian kids are used to uh, uh, watching Estonian uh, channels more, I think, even though, yeah, a lot of them go to YouTube and Netflix as well, but um, our viewers are quite uh, loyal, uh, so... Uh, um, of course, yeah, there are, there are a few channels in Estonia which I think are quite quite big competitors for us, but still, uh, I don't see a problem there. I think we just have to offer the same good quality as always and, and, and try to keep up. <laughs> TV Tour One Plus One Media in Ukraine is looking for co-production partners for a reality TV show that's been developed to help viewers prepare for war. The Last Man on Earth was pitched at Nappy Budapest in Hungary last week by OnePlus One Media's Olga Slizarenko, head of the broadcaster's formats department, and Maria Belaya, a creative producer at its entertainment arm. The paper competition format is designed to be entertaining while also sharing knowledge that could save viewers' lives, the execs said during the event's pitch and play live session. Slizarenko and Belaya spoke about the concept and what more the international community can do to support the Ukrainian TV industry. Olga Slisarenko, I'm head of entertainment department of OnePlus One uh, TV channel, uh, which is uh, the biggest channel of OnePlus One uh, media group, which is the biggest <laughs> Ukrainian uh, media holding. And we operate uh, seven channels, uh, news websites, which are the biggest one in Ukraine via the platform, uh, Etc. 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 And I'm here because uh, we um, took part in pitch and play, and we were in the uh, final. So uh, I came here with uh, a friend of mine and colleague of a colleague of mine to participate in the final of uh, the pitch and play, uh, and also uh, to talk to people to find out who needs uh, what. Uh, because at the moment, all the Ukrainian channels uh, in the past used to be like uh, big buyers, and I would uh, like, as I like to say, that probably in Ukraine we produced almost every format that exists on the market. I mean, I'm exaggerating a lead, but we produced a lot of formats. We had a very severe competition, uh, three huge media groups with uh, a lot of money uh, being spent on producing content. But at the moment, uh, major channels they are in. Um, a one news marathon and we uh, produce only documentaries for the future when the life uh, will get back to more or less normal and then well when the channel uh, one plus one will start uh, broadcasting as a normal channel not as a part of the news marathon so like being closed I would call it like this uh, so uh, we um, had a lot of time to develop different things so we are here also to uh, pitch things that we uh, were going to produce to ourselves, first of all, but we didn't do it because uh, the war began. But we had these formats, uh, some of them we have uh, uh, like fully develop, developed. Some of the screen scripts we have written in third draft, uh, and they, we were about to start shooting. So we are here just to also to promote our ideas. Probably somebody would like to pick it up and to produce. And although the show you pitched uh, wasn't the, the winner um, mm -hmm. it still got people talking definitely so tell me a bit about the show and also what you're looking for in terms of kind of international collaboration on that show 
Uh, well, uh, basically, we uh, realize that it's a paper format, and we are very grateful to um, uh, NotPe that they uh, allowed us to participate in the pitch and play, even though it's a paper format. Uh, and uh, we're looking basically for uh, co-development uh, uh, for a company who could pick up the format and co-develop with us because we understand that there is a lot of work to do still. Uh, and we would like uh, um, like to have a strong partner who would uh, definitely believe in this idea because I know that it sounds a bit ridiculous and it could be a hit or it could be a flop, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's every time when it sounds a bit ridiculous and uh, at the moment, as I strongly believe that it could be uh, a next big thing and that it, could, it, it, it has international potential. Uh, uh, so we hope that we will find somebody who would say, okay, let's improve this and this, mm -hmm. let's do the visual part and uh, let's make a show. Mm -hmm. So it's called The Last Man on Earth. Yes. But what is it about? Uh, it's uh, we call it like the uh, World War Simulator. So this is a show, uh, a game show, uh, which uh, simulates circumstances in which people um, can face uh, challenges that would happen with them if uh, they will be trapped uh, in a wartime. Uh, so. Um, uh, we think that the mission of the show is to help people in entertaining manner to learn uh, some of the basic uh, things, how to survive, how to protect himself, how to make food supply, what kind of, what kind of food we have to keep uh, which could last longer. And this is Maria. Sorry, uh, she would join us because sure. she's a, a creator of The Last Man on, of, on Earth as well. Uh, my name is uh, Maria Bielaya. I came from Ukraine. I work for OnePlus One, Plus One uh, channel. Uh, I used to be a creative producer and I, and I used to produce uh, realities. Um, I have 15 years of experience. Uh, and here I'm trying to pitch uh, some of my ideas. Uh, and um, we were at the final of this um, pitch uh, with our project. So we came here to present it. Yes, and Olga was just telling me. So, yeah, let's kind of pick that back up. So you were saying about the need for a show that kind of actually brings people and prepares people for the realities of war. Yeah, but it, yeah, for the realities of war, but at the same time we wanted to do it um, in entertaining manner. We wanted, we wanted to give live hugs, but in a kind of bright manner. But at the same time we do realize that marketing is a very important thing at the moment and that nobody would watch like the next booth camp uh, where we train people to survive. No, some people uh, need something which is catchy and uh, which attracts their attention because like the, there are a lot of content uh, uh, in different platforms and the language is not the obstacle anymore, right? As we see. So that's why we think we thought that it should be like a war stimulator and it should be uh, something like that. Uh, and we don't see it um, as a very dark show. Uh, so what we lacked with things that we didn't have this visualization, but we haven't done it yet, right? Just to show the location and etc, etc, etc. So people could realize that Actually, um, it uh, could be also uh, light-hearted a bit in some way, and that the characters, they made their um, tone of voice as well of the show, that the type of characters that we will choose for this show, the casting. And Maria, you made the point that, you know, this could be the difference between life and death for, for viewers if they were, you know, to watch the show. So how would you kind of 
in terms of the way the show is made, how would you ensure that it includes those, you know, very important, I guess, skills um, to prepare people? Uh, we thought about making up the challenges uh, to make people go through these challenges so you can see the concrete result of each uh, participant. And, of course, nobody is killed for real, but uh, it's like in paintball, you know. If you have um, mark in the zone of heart, it means that you would be dead. Uh, so it was supposed to be something uh, like paintball. I mean, nobody is dead, but you can see um, like uh, the concrete result uh, if uh, this person would remain alive or not. And there were lots of buyers in the room. So what's the feedback been like since, since the pitch? Well, most of people were terrified. So, of course. And uh, we, don't, we do understand that people... Are probably are already tired of, the, of this war topic from Ukraine, right? Everybody wants to have normal life and uh, uh, to feel safe. Uh, and uh, this is, for them, it's like a bit it's scary. Yeah, it's a bit like we don't want to hear about it. We don't want our audience to show things about it. And this is what we hear from uh, our different partners that, hey, guys, we love you, we want to help you, but bring us something which is international, which is not specific about the war, right? Um, and to me, it's a bit, uh, I would, uh, um, I guess, a, a great inspiring example is the Squid Game, right? Like the whole world was captivated by it, and the creator spent 10 years trying to push it and explain that only through this hard and cruel things, we can, like we can grab people's attention. Uh, so the same and here, I guess, that everybody's seen survival and other shows, and uh, so we just need to step into the next level to make it like more real but at the same time still safe that you can see some reality but with some because war it's not always about you know killing etc etc because we are much more deep in this topic as we follow uh, and read a lot about this stuff and we see that there is a lot of also humorous moments there is also a lot of uh, hoping moment and very inspiring moment this is just a um, environment where, every, where most of the things are black and white yeah, and are put to the extreme. And this is what makes it like tickling, you know, and it's very good, I guess, for watching because the stakes are very high. And at all the events I've been to, you know, since um, Russia's invasion in February, there's been Ukrainian delegations. So MIP TV, Connect to Fiction and Entertainment in Spain earlier in June, and now here at Napi Budapest International. Um, and obviously we've seen the Ukrainian TV industry coming together in an amazing way. Um, how has it been, this, this market, for you? And what do you think are kind of the next, the next steps for the way that international companies can support the Ukrainian TV industry? Um, well, uh, we are very united. I'm, it's such a pity that we are united by such horrible events and we feel extremely big support from our European partners and we are very grateful for that. Uh, what we see that uh, we need to support our economy, right? Ukrainian economy. So a lot of people uh, from TV industry, they are jobless at the moment and they are spread in different countries. If it's uh, women with kids, so most of them are in Europe because it's safer for kids. So, um, of course, so 
uh, how they can help its uh, like use uh, our brains, hands, etc., etc. And it's also to uh, we pitch a lot, but not that much ideas are picked up because. Uh, uh, but we would like to have like a feed, more like feedback. Okay, let's change this and this. Let's think another way, right? So it will be more helpful than just uh, you know. Thank you very much. It was a great pitch, but you know, no. So uh, like a very constructive feedback is also appreciated. And uh, what else? Like you know that we are very dependent in the past a lot from the Russian market. Until 2014, we didn't even have like our own. Um, uh, TV series industry, so it's all started to develop. So it's so it's all very young. It's only eight years old, but we have a lot of people who have uh, like, of course, like everywhere, a lot of great ideas. And what we think I we need to do is to be like more united with Europe and to be more integrated into this uh, European family. Yeah, and I would like also to say that. Um, Ukrainian TV market is very developed, really, and the content level is very high. So I think in future uh, it's a large market also, and um, we all have to think about how to integrate into each other's market because everybody will win because of that. And and look for the topics that could be international and uh, viewed all over uh, Europe. And at the Ukrainian screening session earlier at NAPI Budapest International, it was just so clear to see that the quality and the premium ideas coming out of Ukraine that, you know, are available. So it's, it's it feels like a bit of a win-win for, for the industry. Yeah, Ukraine uh, has bought a lot of formats, international formats, and almost uh, always uh, we've got the best adaptations in the world. So that means that we've got a lot of professionals working on our market and they could be very precious for Europe also. Yeah, this is all these compliments about it. Oh, it's a great adaptation. This is uh, all this recognition that we received from the format owners, right? So, uh, and uh, some of the international franchises in Ukraine, they last like years and years and years and uh, are still popular, you know, like MasterChef, which is huge, I guess. It's like, uh, it was 10 seasons uh, or even more. The same as uh, we were the second country to pick up The Voice uh, uh, and uh, like Dancing with the Stars, Creative Stations. It's always like, okay, it's time for Ukraine. Now it's your time to talk because uh, we did uh, amazing things and we have a lot of uh, uh, passionate people who love their uh, profession and they would like to, you know, to contribute to European market as well until things in Ukraine will settle down. So it will be like a huge uh, help for us. Olga Slizarenko and Maria Belaya. Eastern European markets have historically been major buyers of telenovelas and as such remain key for suppliers like Brazilian media group Globo, which was among those returning to Napi Budapest last week. The company, which has a long relationship with Hungarian national broadcaster RTL, was presenting its latest series to buyers, including a revival of classic family saga Pantanal, currently reaching over 35 million viewers each day back home. Globo sales manager Isadora Filpi spoke to Nico Franks about this title, as well as others on the slate, such as A Life Worth Living, now on air in Hungary and representing a more premium, shorter-run version of the traditional telenovela format. She also talked about reaching new audiences through streaming service Globo Play. 
Well, my name is Isadora Filpi. I am a sales manager at Globo, one of the, the biggest media entertainment companies from Latin America and the biggest one in Brazil. And we're at Nappy Budapest International, the first time it's being held in person since 2019. What does coming back to in-person events mean for you? I think it means for everybody too much, you know, like everybody's really happy and excited to be able to see the partners again, to really be in touch with people. Of course, we can use emails and WhatsApp and Zoom meetings and the technology is here to help us. And of course, this digital side will continue. We are sure about this, but there is nothing like being able to really meet people in person and uh, discussing cooperation opportunities and really bounding with these people so we are really glad to be here to be back to Budapest and to see all of our partners and elsewhere in June so there, I was at an event called Connect Fiction and Entertainment in Spain and Globo had a big presence there you had colleagues talking all about yeah international collaborations is it a similar ambition here or is it more kind of trying to sell finished programming rather than starting those conversations about new shows? I think it's important to mention that Global has lots of platforms in Brazil. We have our free TV channel, which is the, the most watched one in Brazil. We have a strong streaming platform as well and many pay TV channels. So we are producing for all of these platforms and of course selling all of those products too. So of course selling the red-made products is also really important. But we understand the change of the industry. We understand that we are in a new environment environment and that's why new business are always welcome. So this uh, co-production strategies and also all types of business that we can discuss, we are always open for this in our territories because the idea is to really understand of what, what, what our local partners need, what they want and how we can cooperate. So basically that's why every time I'm talking with a partner I discuss about cooperation opportunities. Let's see what Global can do to really help them with their programming strategies, with their strategies in general, like the, their business. So that's something that we try to look at every market. And what are some of the particulars of the Central and Eastern European market? And obviously that incorporates lots of different countries with lots of different tastes. But in general, is there kind of a common theme that, in terms of what they're looking for? Yeah, we feel that this market is really open for drama, for telenovelas, which is something that we are quite strong at. And uh, actually many of, it, of them remembers of Global for many of uh, old telenovelas. And uh, so they, they connect Global as the telenovela producer. So right now we are also introducing to them every day more our diversified portfolio. The fact that we have all of those platforms I mentioned before and that we produce for all of them. And of course that we have programming for all types of platforms and needs and business. So I think this is something interesting because uh, every time we are with a client, we are showing them and we are seeing too that we have lots of connections. Many companies here in, in this region, they also work in a similar way uh, from global. Like they have uh, VLD platforms, they invest in this, they, they see that the industry is coming for this way. They also have strong free TV channels. So usually they are media groups such as us. 
So we see that there's a lot of connection between our our companies. And I think that's something specific for this, this territory as well. So uh, we are showing them these connections. We are seeing these connections, as I mentioned. And we are trying to grow our presence again, not only in telenovelas, but in general in all of the productions we have. And I think over the years, recently, Globo's telenovelas have been kind of, they're becoming like super telenovelas almost, kind of more premium, slightly shorter, or a lot shorter in some cases. How has that gone down in, in the Central and Eastern European market? Yeah, I think that's been working very nicely. We are actually starting new deals with very important uh, partners in this region. For example, I can mention RTL here in Hungary. So we had we have right now on there the the telenovela A Life Worth Living, which is a shorter one and premium one, uh, as you mentioned. So and and we are continuing this partnership, and this is happening all over the territory. So I think this strategy really comes to what we uh, really uh, think is important, not only in the international market, but also in Brazil. And it means really understand the consumer's needs, the audience needs. So people nowadays, they really want a story, like uh, something that can get their attention, that can make them going. So uh, this is something we focus, not only uh, you know, international market is something strong in our productions for Brazil too. So we put the consumers in the center of everything. And I think that's what helps us to also connect with consumers all over the world, you know, international stories with uh, uh, themes like love and revenge and, you know, typical telenovelas that really connect and can uh, make people remind of their selves, of their lives. Italian novellas can come from anywhere, so Latin America, Spain, Turkey, South Korea. How are all those different kinds of Italian novellas kind of influencing one another, do you think? Um, I think that's an interesting question, yeah. That's that's something that we always see come and go, like in terms of, uh, of markets, right, and their stories. And every time people think about Latin America and Spain, they also think about those dramas, right? They're those intense dramas. And I think that's great because we are actually trying to show the reality, right? And uh, um, I think the industry right now is every day more competitive. That's something that we see. And as you mentioned, there are many great producers all over the world. So the way that we try to make a difference uh, is with having these powerful stories, these powerful content productions, premium productions. And I think everybody's trying to do the same, to get the attention uh, of all consumers. And nowadays we compete not only with other uh, entertainment producers, but also with internet, right, and social medias. So I think the connection with this is that the fact that everybody's trying to produce better and more and with diversified stories that really can get the attention of the final consumers. And what are some of the shows that kind of picking up the attention while you've been here on the, on the Globo slate? Well, I think the two main uh, products I can mention here, and they are the ones that we are really working right now, are the telenovela Pantanal, 
which it, it is a, a hit in Brazil. It's on air right now in our prime time, and um, it's really taking the hearts of people. This is a telenovela that we first produced on the 90s, uh, so everybody liked it, and the ratings were huge. And now that we are making this remake with this new contest and also new uh, way of telling the story, People are really in love with it. We have some pretty impressive uh, uh, numbers. Like n we have a reaching of 35.8 million people per day watching this telenovela, which means an increase of 30%. And there's a lot uh, of the previous comparing to the previous telenovela. So it's interesting because we are seeing that the international market is out is also. Uh, thinking that this is a great production, you know, it's not only in Brazil. So right now it's being aired also in Portugal, in SIC, our partner there. And uh, we are starting to to make this, this telenovela travel. So here in Latvia people the past, we are seeing lots of clients also very interested in it. So we're really bad on it. And also the series uh, called Under Pressure. This one, it's the, the fifth uh, season. Um, it's one of the best sellers for, from Global, and it has been indicated to many international prizes, so this, that's really cool as well. And uh, we launched it in exclusively to our streaming platform at, uh, on June. So this is interesting because we also saw this young and digital audience focusing on watching this season and getting involved with this, uh, this production. And uh, we can tell this to our clients, to our partners here in the market, and they are seeing that they, they also need this, this, this data, this information from our consumers. They are uh, somehow the same or, or very similar to what our partners here are searching for. So it's nice to have these products that connect to them as well. And you mentioned the streaming service there, and that's obviously in Brazil, but it's also got international ambitions and it's launching in different territories and I think it is available in Eastern Europe or definitely parts of Europe, lots of parts of Europe. So how is that affecting the kind of business that you can do here with your clients? Yeah, well, actually, uh, Global Play is, as you said, expanding, which is amazing, and we have it available in many countries, and that's a strategy we have, and we're very proud of this platform. Uh, but we still focus a lot on the Brazilian audience uh, outside Brazil, or, or even people that speak Portuguese. So in terms of, for example, Eastern Europe, that's not a huge problem for our clients because we are holding the Portuguese language, you know, of the, of the titles. Um, and it's actually a way that we can boost both, uh, both platforms. So if we have a partner that uh, use the, the content on free TV, we can do some partnership and always, always think of how cooperating. That's what I mentioned to you previously. We don't go to the market uh, thinking about only selling content, but we go to the market thinking about cooperating, about developing new business with our partners and understanding what is best for everybody. So I think this way of thing helps us to build anything that is necessary. Isadora Philpi speaking with Nico Franks. That's all for this episode, but you can hear more discussion by tuning in to our C21 FM internet radio station, where you'll find new interviews airing from Monday. The podcast will be back next Friday. In the meantime, stay up to date with all the latest international TV industry news and views by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. My name's Jonathan Webdale. 
Thanks for listening.